Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed, and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. Hey, good morning. Good to be here with you folks. I think I was, I last preached here in March. I kind of thought I got voted off the island or something, but it's good to be back. No, we've been busy at Mount Barker, so obviously Mount Barker, we're still meeting every week, and um, so yeah, I haven't forgotten you, you know, I haven't kind of um, just uh, left you for done, guys, uh, to your own devices. Dave and Leona have been here um, looking after you all, but I should say too that um, in reflecting this week, just the sense of like, wow, what, what God has done in the last 18 months, just amazing, really. Uh, I said to someone this week at the pastors conference, we had Baptist pastors get together at Handorf at the uh, retreat centre and, you know, kind of Baptist grapevine, you know, word, everyone knows that Hills and Mount Barker were looking to amalgamate, word gets out there. Christians love good goss, don't they? I, I call it sanctified goss. There is a goss which is sanctified. There's a gossip which is not, and you've got to be careful of that. But just that grapevine goss and, oh, so how's it going? And, you know, what, what's happening? And, and I was like, it's been an amazing journey. It's been really hard uh, in, in many ways. I think Dave, you would echo that as well. It, it's been hard. And I said, look, I'm happy to have done one amalgamation and that's probably enough. But I think we learned some stuff through it as well. And like so many people across our church community were involved. We had, you know, well over 30 people meeting, some of them weekly for months, you know, working out how this was going to work. So we've had a heap of people involved and a, a huge team. Um, but I think we've learned some stuff too. And, and maybe we could, uh, you know, share that at some point later on, you know, write our amalgamation journey book, you know, um, five ways to amalgamate well. But it's been an amazing journey. And just just to pause and say, wow, God has done this. If you think back early 2020, perhaps, you know, January, February, think of where Verdun Hills were, think of where Mount Barker Baptist was, kind of getting ready, you know, Hills, Verdun were looking for land out there, uh, Mount Barker region, Mount Barker Baptist had sold their property and were looking to build on Bolland Road and we all had our plans and everything and then this thing called COVID-19 kind of just hit and all that was thrown up a bit and I was in Melbourne for 2020 with Amanda and whenever I meet people from Melbourne around the place here in Adelaide if they're visiting, you kind of go, are you 2020 Melbourne? There's this yeah, it's just like collective trauma. We're still getting over it. Now, I preached to the church in Melbourne that I was pastoring in uh, March 2020. I preached like this in person. The next time I preached to a quarter of the church in person with masks on was December that year. So we had like nine months of lockdown. I, I, if I can just get some group therapy here for a moment, let me share. Well, I was... I had to have a permit. Like I live next door to the church building. It's called the manse. They don't do it anymore because it was really cruel to put pastors next door to the church. But anyway, we lived there nine years, so we were gluttons for punishment. Um, but I had to have a permit signed by the couple of our officers of the church to go to the church office next door. And we have that permit. Anyway, I'll, I'll leave it there. I've had enough. Um, you don't need to know about that. It's not your problem. You're in Adelaide and you are lucky. But if you think about just what's happened, it's amazing. It's amazing what God has done. We have land on Bolland Road, debt-free. We have a healthy, vibrant church community. We're, we're just in such a good place. Mount Barker Baptist, Hills Baptist coming together. And yes, it hasn't been an easy journey and there's been some pain, but God has done it. And let's just give him the glory for it. Yeah, amen. Okay, well, we're going to continue with the book of Acts. So Luke Austin preached last week, if you were here. Luke, are you here? No, he's not here. All right, well, I won't bag his message then, but I was going to correct a few things. 
No, Luke did a great job last week. I listened to the message, um, it was Acts chapter 11. It's like this whole story of the gospel starting to go to the Gentiles or the non-Jewish people. Um, and he did a great message and he gave a really interesting image about himself playing in sewerage. Um, it wasn't recently, he was a child. And he was saying that that's how the, a lot of the Jewish believers felt about the Gentiles, about the non-Jewish people coming into the church. And so that's where we're picking up this sense of the church is changing. It's shifting and there's some tensions, there's some issues emerging uh, as you head through Acts from this point. And I love that about the Bible. It's kind of warts and all. It's not just this golden age picture of, like you look at the disciples with Jesus, often they look like idiots sometimes through the Gospels. They just don't get it. And isn't that reassuring <laughs> for us? Um, the early church as well, you can see some things arising here in Acts, some tensions, some challenges, um, and, and you go, yeah, this is okay. God is at work even when there's challenges, even when there's trouble, even when things are tough, God is still at work. So we head into um, Antioch. Well, the disciples head into Antioch. We're going to pick it up from, uh, not Luke, uh, Luke wrote Acts, but Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen, Stephen was the first Christian martyr. He's been killed for his faith in Jesus publicly. They spread as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however... You, can you do a some of them? Some of them. All right, just checking you there. However, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. Let's give a shout out for the Greeks. <laughs> Telling them about the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this spread and reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived, he saw evidence of the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. And he was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And then Barnabas went to Tarsus, just around the corner of the Mediterranean there. And he was looking for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. And this happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift uh, to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Amazingly, th this snapshot and the whole book of Acts is, is a condensed picture. We might be about 12, 15 years after the day of Pentecost here, so it's, it's not like just you know a rolling diary each day of the church. This is a condensed picture of the first couple, two or three decades of the church. And even in Antioch here, that text might take us over a couple of years, just what we read. So we're going to just unpack it a bit. But I, I watch Dave's message, and, and Dave is a great preacher, and he does something that I don't do, and then he has titles for his messages. So I felt pressured today that I needed to have a title. Um, so I came up with a really bad one, um, but um, I even forgot what it was. What was it up there? <laughs> Like, did I give it to you, Sophie? Um, no, that's not it. Uh, that's my first point. It was um, the Antioch paradigm. Yes, the Antioch paradigm. I got it. Um, and I want to look at church through the Antioch paradigm. You know what a paradigm is? It's like the way we see the world. It's like a lens through which we see things. And now and then in culture and history and even in the Bible, the revelation of God across 
Israel and the church, there's a paradigm shift. Something has to change and shift in the way that we see things and the way that we comprehend reality. And this happens here in this text. It's a major paradigm shift for the early church. It's like back in the, whenever it was, the the Copernicus kind of came out and said, hey, I've got this new view about the universe. The earth is not... Um, hang on, whatever it was. The, the sun is not at the centre. It was geocentric. Was that right? Any scientists here? That the, the earth is, yeah. So the, the sun is not revolving around the earth. The earth is revolving around the sun. That was a paradigm shift. Everyone saw the universe through a certain lens and Copernicus said, no, no, this is how it is. And so they had to change how they saw things. They had to change their outlook. And that's what's happening here in Antioch. So I don't want to pick on Jerusalem here, um, but I want to just draw a few different sort of aspects of the old Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church from the book of Acts, and then Antioch. And some of this is a little bit of creative expression, but we'll just go there anyway. So Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem, the old Jerusalem was old and known. It's established as God's centre for a long time. Antioch was new and unknown. Jerusalem, historically and and even now in the church a bit, was hierarchical and centralised leadership. Antioch was more egalitarian and flat leadership. Jerusalem was comfortable. People knew Jerusalem. They were comfortable there. They knew the systems and the temple worship. Antioch was uncomfortable. Jerusalem was more predictable. Antioch was innovative. Um, Jerusalem was temple-based worship based in in a geographic location. Antioch was kind of dispersed worship, worship in a new place, based in houses primarily. Jerusalem was fading. And Antioch was beginning to flourish. This is what's happening here. There's a move from Jerusalem, from that being the centre of the people of God to the gospel and the people of God spreading out and going out. Now, Antioch was um, no small town. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was cosmopolitan, like multicultural. It was historically like a lot of Roman cities were, uh, a fairly loose, uh, morally speaking, um, a, a, lots of wickedness. It was a place where some Jewish people lived. So there was a synagogue. There was some teaching of the law of Moses. But it was a multicultural kind of morally loose Roman city and lots of different languages and people there. And so it was an interesting place to head out from Jerusalem. Um, I'll just read a couple of things which back up what I was saying a little bit about Jerusalem and Antioch. Um, Kenneth Gangel says, The church of Antioch from the outset had an ethos quite distinct from that of the Jerusalem church. No one can doubt the significance of Jerusalem in the early chapters of Acts, but now things are different. The mother church for the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world, the home base for the rest of the book of Acts is not Jerusalem, but Antioch and a congregation which bore the marks of a biblical church. And these guys, these, I tell you what, these are my kin, these men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyprus is a little island just off the coast of you know, Israel there, north of Africa. Cyrene was probably where modern-day Morocco is. So these Jewish people, they're Jewish people, but they're native of Cyprus and Cyrene, they're spreading out from Jerusalem because Stephen's just been killed. They've seen someone they probably know and love be publicly executed for their faith in Jesus. So people, the Jewish Christians are starting to go, let's go back home, let's go back to our homelands. And as they go, most of them, like 99% of them, are just going to the synagogues back home and sharing about Jesus the Messiah in their synagogues. This is interesting, right? Because Jesus said in Matthew 28, Go into all the world, okay, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, baptising them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'll be with you always. So Jesus had told his Jewish disciples, this message is for all nations. 
And yet here we are about 15 years later, they've just had a little sojourn to Cornelius' house, Peter has, to a Gentile house, and then Peter has to come back and justify and defend what he was doing in the house of a non-Jewish person. So there's this tension there. And even now, these Jewish Christians are heading out from Jerusalem, even though in Acts 1.8, Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and ends of the earth. What are these guys doing? And so they need a paradigm shift. They need a breakthrough here because their thinking is just stuck in this mode. Even though God had said to them, don't just hang in Jerusalem. And so they head all out, but these guys from Cyprus. Now, my yaya was from Cyprus, so I kind of feel this kinship with these Cypriot guys here. Um, and I've been to Cyprus, and I've kind of walked along the, the, the port road, the ancient Roman road, where Paul and Barnabas a bit later would have landed and, and walked down into Salamis to start preaching the gospel. So I feel like, I don't know, I just feel homely here with, with some of these Greeks. The Cyrenes, I don't know who they are, but they, they were down the coast a bit there. But uh, they're good guys too. So they had this idea, hey, why don't we go to Antioch and start preaching to the Greeks, to other, other nationalities? Why don't we? And this is a huge thing for them. And so they do that. And they head out to Antioch. And you think of it too, like, wouldn't you feeling a little bit insecure? You've just seen Stephen put to death by Jewish people, your own people, and then you're going to go to some foreign place where people will be even more hostile and perhaps you'll be in more danger. Like, do you see how much they love Jesus, that they are prepared to put aside their own comfort and their own security for the sake of the gospel. And so they head to Antioch. And there's a few things in Antioch I just want to pull out as, as a church, which I believe that, that God in, in the book of Acts, the Spirit has shown, this is the church that, that I want to spread over the nations. These are some of the attributes, the elements of the Antioch church. But just before I do... Imagine you're those Cypriot dudes and those Cyrene believers. Imagine you're them and you've just arrived in Antioch and no one there knows Jesus. They don't know who he is, what he's done. They don't know about the resurrection. They don't know any of that. And you, maybe a handful of you, a half a dozen, arrive in Antioch. I want you to take a minute to talk to the people next to you to, and say, how would you start? How would you start the mission there? Have a chat for two or three minutes, or two, two, a minute, just in, in little groups, two or three people. How would you start the mission? Okay, now we're not in Antioch, but we are in the Adelaide Hills. And so it's a question that we ask, you know, that we're asking, how do we reach the people who don't know Jesus in the Adelaide Hills and beyond? How, how do we do that? And whatever you've been discussing there, I'm sure it's good stuff, but think and pray about that. As you have neighbours next door to you, as you have people in your workplace, as you connect with families at school, um, whatever it might be, think and pray and ask that. How would I start to share Jesus 
with this person or these people? Where would I begin? Let's have a look where Antioch began. And the first thing that I see in this is that what, what drove them was a love for the lost. They had a love for the lost. They could have just gone home to Cyprus, home to Cyrene, gone back to their families, their synagogue, their community, being believers in Jesus in the synagogue, try and convince their Jewish compatriots. But no, they're like, these people need to know this news. This is good news. This is universal news. This is news for everyone. So they loved the lost. These Cypriots and Cyrenes, they loved the lost. They reached out and they went to a place where people didn't know Jesus, where Jesus wasn't known. And I was thinking about that this week for my own kind of story. You know, I was so thankful for, and I say it, I've said it before, I said it again, that Christians who got out from under the covers, so to speak, or you know, they weren't undercover Christians. They reached out to me in a workplace and an old friend who'd become a Christian looked me up when I was 19. I would have been, I reckon my life would have been gone by 21. It was, it was so reckless and, and I'd become so broken and so depressed uh, in looking for meaning, for truth, for love. And some Christians reached out to me. And if I look back at myself at that time now and go, what would I have thought about myself? And I would have thought, man, that guy is, is far from God. And you might look around at people in your own life, family, friends, whatever, and think they're far from God. But God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And I was so thankful for people who reached out to me in that space. And I began to read the scriptures and, and kind of say, I want to I make Jesus known as well. I used to go into Hindley Street, um, take my guitar on Friday, Saturday nights. I think I knew like two songs and four chords. But that was enough to play most worship songs, right? And um, a lot of Beatles too. I wasn't really into the Beatles, but um, used to just be there to tell people about Jesus. And I don't know that I did it very well, but it was just this sense of, we're going to get the word out there. We're going to make Jesus known. And now and then, you know, you bumped into some Christians in Hindley Street on a Bucks party or something, and, and uh, it was interesting conversations. But I remember a time when I, I went out um, for a walk one night. I was living down at Henley Beach, and I walked past this church building. And I don't know what sort of church it was. It doesn't matter. But it was full of people in the foyer. It was like 12 or 13 people sitting in a circle in the foyer. And I'm a new Christian. I'm thinking, hey, they're my people now. That's my tribe. And so I went and knocked on the door. They opened the door. I'm like, hi, I'm Nick. <laughs> I've become a Christian recently. They're like, okay. And uh, they said, well, would you like to join us? And I'm thinking, yeah, this is it, right? This is where we do the stuff. We, we get together. We pray fervently. We kind of strategize about how we're going to reach the neighborhood and the nations. That's, this is that, right? I didn't say that, but I was thinking that. And so I joined the meeting. And as it turns out, it was like the church council or the, the, the elders or the deacons, whatever. And I'm there, I'm sitting in this circle, and they were very gracious just to let me come and join the meeting. Um, but I'm thinking, these are my people now. I'm a Christian, right? And I want to hang out with these people. And as I'm sitting there, uh, over time, I realised the main agenda item for this meeting was not the evangelization of the nations. It was the dampness of the photocopy paper in the church office, because it was winter, and the paper was getting damper. And it was getting stuck in the photocopier more and more. So I'm sitting in this meeting, and I reckon for well over an hour, the people are going around in a circle offering their strategy for the damp photocopy paper. And I'm thinking, I'm a little bit disappointed. I thought this was kind of how do we reach the world kind of meeting, but never mind. I'm in there. I'm going to try and help. And so one guy's like, we could like drill a hole in the top of the paper cupboard and drop a light down a light bulb because at that point light bulbs used to be warm. They weren't LEDs. And that would dry the paper out. And then the photocopy wouldn't get stuck. And someone else says, well, maybe we could spread the paper out over a table in the photocopy room and then it would be less dense and it won't be as damp. And these are great ideas, right? And I'm inspired. I'm sitting there. What can I offer this? And I don't remember what I said, but I contributed something about the photocopy of paper. But I remember later on thinking about that, reflecting, going, surely that was an aberration. And then I became a pastor. <laughs> and I was like, that was the Lord preparing me, <laughs> preparing me for ministry. Because that stuff goes on. And it's okay. Like, it's important to have, you know, photocopies that aren't clogged. Thankfully, 
I think God answered our prayers that night because photocopies have come a long way and they don't jam up as much. So the Lord is working in that space. Just want to let you know. But here at Antioch, look at the passion. It was a love for people who don't know Jesus, a willingness to pay a price, to suffer, to set aside their own comfort and security so that people could know Jesus. And as I rocked up to Alpha a couple of weeks ago, I was driving into Allgate and Leona and the team has just put such a, a great thing together. It's just running so well. Um, I had this sense of, yeah, this is why I came into ministry. This is why I wanted to be a pastor, was to help people know Jesus. This is why Jesus created the church. Jesus didn't create the church and then go, oh, I better work out a mission for my church. No, he had a mission to seek and save the lost, to restore the nations, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So he created the church for his mission. And Antioch got that. They loved the lost. The second thing you see at Antioch um, is that they loved the word. They loved worship. They loved prayer. They were spiritually vibrant. They were spiritually strong. And how do we know this? Um, when news of this reached Jerusalem, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now just, again, hear and read into that. Like This is Jerusalem going, okay, something happened over there in Antioch. It's going to send Barnabas down to make sure it's okay. Uh, we don't know what's going on. Antioch is 500 Ks from Jerusalem. Just checking it out. Send Barnabas. He'll know what to do. When he arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done. What do you think that looked like when Barnabas rocked up to Antioch? He saw a, gr a group of Greeks of other nationalities, non-Jewish people, some Jews as well, gathering together, worshipping Jesus in the Spirit. He's, and he's like, this is the grace of God. Only God could do this. God has saved these non-Jewish people. The gospel's breaking out here. And it says he was glad. He was glad. The, the word's a bit stronger there. It, it means like joyful. He was joyous. When he saw what the grace of God had done, he was joyous because his heart was with the Lord. And he encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So there's a movement happening in Antioch. Barnabas comes down from Jerusalem. He gets involved, and more people start coming into this movement. It's catalytic. It's kind of happening. This person's encountering Jesus. They're telling their friend, and this person is, and they're telling their spouse and whole households. And this movement across this big Roman city is happening. And Barnabas sees it and he's glad. And in Acts chapter 13, we can see how they love the word worship and prayer. It says, there were prophets and teachers in Antioch, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod, um, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart Barnabas, and sends them on another mission trip. So this is a couple of years later, Antioch is now sending people out on mission and ministry. A couple of years down the track. This is how fast things are moving. And they love the word. They love worshipping. They love prayer. And God is beginning to use Antioch as the new centre for the mission to reach the Mediterranean and beyond. And we see that Barnabas went to Tarsus, just up around the coast to look for Saul. So Barnabas is maybe a year in. He's going, this thing's getting too big. We need some help. I need some biblical firepower here. And he goes, I know the guy. Because all these Greeks, all these non-Jewish people coming, they don't know the Old Testament. Um, they've got to teach them all that Jesus said. Uh, they've got to teach them about worship, about prayer, about all the things that you need to know as a disciple. And Barnabas is starting to feel it's getting a bit bigger. And so he goes and gets Paul. And Paul was kind of, again, a suspicious character to some in the church. He was a Jewish man, but he oversaw the stoning of Stephen, the first church martyr. So rightly so, people are a little bit suspicious. Barnabas is a bridge builder. He brings people together. He's a bridge builder. And we need bridge builders in the church. Um, not bridge burners, <laughs> bridge builders. <laughs> we need them. 
And Barnabas goes to get Saul, brings him. Now Saul is, is like, he's off the charts. He speaks Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic. He has probably memorised as a student under Gamaliel, one of the great rabbis in Jerusalem, in Israel. He learned under him. He's probably memorised most, if not all, of the Old Testament. It's an oral culture. People learnt by memorization. And when Paul's writing his letters later on, he's not like going to Google going, oh, just searching righteousness in Jeremiah. No, he's like just speaking it. He knows the scriptures. He's like biblical firepower teacher. He comes into Antioch. And for a whole year, it says, Paul and Barnabas taught the disciples. They love the word. Imagine and they weren't just meeting once a week for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. They were meeting evenings and days and all the time. This is just a movement. It's breaking out. It's messy, but God is at work. And it's beautiful. And they're loving the Word. They're learning. And they're growing as they do. They love the Word. They love worship. They love prayer. So Antioch is a church that loves the lost. They're, they're focused on those who don't know Jesus. They love worship, word, and, the, and prayer. And I love how every week as a staff team, we anchor Tuesday mornings in worship together, in reading and studying the word, in prayer together. And as Christians, whether you're married or single, have a family, should anchor each day in worship, word, and prayer. Anchor each morning throughout the day and the evening. This is our breath. This is our life. Now, thirdly, I, I love the alliteration I got here. I just want to put that out there. But number three in Antioch, they love letting leaders loose. <laughs> How hard was that to get four L's? But anyway, thank you, Jesus. Um, <laughs> they love letting leaders loose. This is a, a movement that's just raising up people. Uh, they're equipping people. Paul and Barnabas are, are let loose. Remember, Paul's not technically officially a leader in the church community in one sense. He's still in Tarsus. And Barnabas brings him back and Paul's let loose for a year. And they're all going, this guy's phenomenal. We've got to get him out. We've got to send him out. We've got to send him to other places. He can preach and teach the Word. He gets Jesus. He knows all Jesus has done, he knows what it means. And so they let them loose. But not only that, they raise up other leaders as well. They, they equip other leaders in the church. And you'll see that uh, in a moment. But um, I, I love what Tom Wright says about this passage. Again and again, the church needs not only the people who really can take the work forwards, but the people who in prayer and humility can spot the very person that God is calling. And Barnabas saw that. Who do we need here? What does this movement need? And in the church, we, we pray for that wisdom as well, to discern and see in one another. Who is God calling to this ministry, to lead that group, to do this thing? And we need to release people into that. Now, Barnabas was a wealthy Jew from Cyprus. He was quite well off. How do we know that? In Acts chapter 5, I think it is, he sells a big parcel of land that he has in Cyprus, a surplus parcel of land, brings the money and gives it as part of his offering to the church for its mission and ministry. His aunt is mentioned in a couple of chapters in a great story um, where Peter's in jail. His aunt Mary has a big home in Jerusalem. And heaps of the church meet there. And you'll hear about that maybe next week or the week after. And he's from a well-off, wealthy family. But they're not, they're, they're people who are not captured by their wealth. Wealth doesn't have them. It doesn't hold them. Their heart is held by Jesus. And so they use their wealth. They use their material possessions. They use what God has given them for his work, for his kingdom work. They're not bound by it. Now, Paul is a brilliant Bible scholar. He's passionate in prayer. Paul's just, he is, he's a machine. Um, that guy travelled like tens of thousands of Ks on foot across the known world. He was shipwrecked, beaten. He's just suffered immensely for Jesus. And he's like, yeah, bring it on. I consider these present momentary sufferings nothing compared to the glory that's revealed. He was an amazing leader. Now, um, just, I've lost my, um, my verse I was going to read here, but if you go a, a bit forward to Acts 
chapter 13. Yeah, I read that just earlier. You'll see that in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. It's not just Barnabas and Saul. There's Simeon, there's Lucius, there's Manaean. So they're a church that loves to let leaders loose. And that means giving people space, giving them room to have a go and maybe, you know, not do it so well. It's not easy sometimes. We have high standards in church communities. But I think, you know, it's helpful to have... Uh, a, a lower bar, just participation is really important. Give, have an opportunity. So if you, you know, got an idea or you know, have a passion for something or have a sense of God calling into you, you calling you into something, like talk to one of the leaders, one of the elders, one of the pastors, and and you know we won't beat you down. We'll we'll try and find a way to to release what God is putting on your heart. Create space for leaders to to grow and flourish. And that's what they're doing in Antioch. They love the lost. They're passionate to see people know Jesus. And I had to check myself this week, to be honest. And maybe you do. I don't know. Like we get quite comfy as Western Christians. And, you know, like sometimes, like as a pastor, it's like on my door should be, you know, church complaints department. You know, like, oh, pastor, I didn't like that song, you know, or wasn't too happy about this or whatever. Now, I know no one talks like that, but that's what they sound in my head when they, they, they talk. And it's okay, like, to be honest and open. Let's be real. Let's, let's be honest and open about things. But, you know, there's a sense in which where is our passion? Where's my passion? Is my passion for my comfort and my security? Is my passion um, just for my own well-being um, or just for our own church? And I had to check myself and say, Lord, stir me up again. I've lost some passion for those who don't know you. I've lost some sense of urgency. I've, I've lost a sense of this is really like vital and serious. If we understand the gospel, if we understand what Jesus has done, what he has taught, those who don't kneel to him now in worship, those who don't acknowledge him as the one true Lord and God. Those who don't yield and surrender their lives to him, believing in his grace and forgiveness, taking on the gift of forgiveness, they face an eternal experience apart from God. That's what Jesus taught. That's what the Bible teaches. And I know we get a bit funny about that now in the comfortable Western world, but that's the reality. And it should stir me. It should make me, um, I should weep more. It should impact me more. And I had to, and I'm still repenting and I'll keep repenting. Lord, I used to be really, really like broken for people who didn't know you. And I want to be that again, like this Antioch church. So they love the lost. They love the word of God. They love studying it and learning about who God is in their faith. They love prayer. They love worship. They love letting leaders loose. And here's something that they do as well. They love one another. They love one another. And we see that in verse 27. I'll talk about prophets in just a moment. Um, one of the Magabus predicted there's going to be a famine. And so... The Jews in Israel, um, the, the Jewish Christians are going to be doing it tough. Now listen to this, verse 29. The disciples, now just a word on disciples, I'll come back to this. In Antioch, this is the first place that disciples were called Christians. Christians is not the title that the followers of Jesus chose for themselves. It's the title that those who were mocking them chose for them. It was like, oh, those Christites. Yeah, yeah. We might say those Bible bashers. But in Antioch, they were first called Christians. The movement was so powerful across this huge city, they had such an impact that the local populace gave them their own name. Now, they called themselves disciples, brothers and sisters. That's what they called themselves. And disciple, just being a student, they were students of Jesus, disciples of Jesus. But in Antioch, they got a nickname and it stuck. So basically... When we use Christian now, we're using a bit of a derisive term from the people in Antioch. <laughs> we're like, yeah, those Christites, those Bible bashers, those religious nutters. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know them. Yeah, my sister's one of them. <laughs> and so that's how we became to be called Christians. Isn't that great? All right. Now, this is what the disciples did. Verse 29, they 
As each one was able, they decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. I love this. It was, it, again, it came up from the grassroots. It wasn't someone having to bang on about helping people, you know, raising an offering. Um, they just heard about the need of their brothers and sisters throughout Judea. And they're like, we're going to act. We're going to do something. These are young Christians, right? They're two years, 18 months, two years into following Jesus. And now they're working out their, their mission strategy to bring aid to their brothers and sisters in Judea. Like what a dynamic movement. This is the Antioch paradigm. It's not like, oh, you've got to wait a long time before God can use you, before you can serve the Lord. No, it's like in Antioch, oh, you've been a Christian for a week? Great, you're on the worship team. You're leading a life group. Um, you're, you're on the mission team. Uh, we're sending you out next month, you know, on a mission trip to the towns around. It's just that. And isn't that what Jesus did? He taught. And we think of teaching, we think of education, we think of just like transferring information. But Jesus taught transformationally. He conveyed knowledge. He actually taught content. But then he said, right, now you do it. You go out. You go out and proclaim my name and pray for the sick. You go and do it. And we get so used to Christians being like, oh, that's the stuff that some like professionals do. The rest of us just get on with our lives and whatever. But no, here are the disciples going, right, we're going to act. And they act and they loved their brothers and sisters in Judea and they sent an offering by way of Barnabas and Saul. Look at the initiative there. Look at the readiness to help and to love. And I thought about that. I was thinking like there are heaps of people in our church community each week who are doing small acts of love. I heard this week someone's like, oh, I was, wasn't doing well, I was in a bad place and someone was bringing a meal around each, each week, you know, um, didn't even ask. And lots of little things, lots of actions of love happen across a church community. And as pastors, we get to perhaps see that a bit more and hear about that. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful when the body of Christ is reaching out, uh, doing its work, loving one another. And that's what Jesus said, right? A new commandment I give unto you, love one another. And after their couple of years of hearing the Bible taught, uh, hearing the, the message of Jesus taught by Paul and Barnabas, they're like, right, so we should love one another. So that means we should act when we see our brothers and sisters in need. When they have challenges and issues, we ought to act. And sometimes it's like we think someone else ought to act. <laughs> sometimes it's just God will, is saying to you. Um, like I do that sometimes and I'm sorry if I've done that to you, but um, I'll just put it out there just so you know if you try it on me. But people come and say, oh, there's this need in the church and there's someone who's struggling and I think the church needs to do something. I'm like, good, go church. <laughs> what do you need? <laughs> How can we help you? No, no, like the church needs to do something. Like the, the church. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Let's share that ministry of love together and, and not just think it's up to someone else. To, to meet that need, to comfort that person, to reach out in love. And we do that. We see it across our church community week in, week out. So they love one another. Quick word on prophecy, because I know some of you might be interested in that. I won't, won't go too long here, but um, prophets and teachers. What do we do with this? There were prophets in Jerusalem, capital P prophets, apostles and prophets and whatnot. There's a lot that could be said about that, and so I'm not going to say a lot. But I would say this. Um, I love what um, one writer says James Dunn uh, about prophecy. And we see in 1 Corinthians that in the body of Christ that God still wants to speak immediately to one another, that Christians have the Spirit of God, that it's not just special people who can share God's Word with others or speak God's Word. But we also see that prophecy is tested and prophecy is not binding. So for instance, you know, young man comes up to you, you're a young lady, and it's like, I believe God's calling me to marry you. Now, it might be a word from the Lord. He could just be like an overly hormonal, hormonal young guy. <laughs> but it's not binding. And that actually happened to me when I became a Christian once. Um, someone, someone did that. But um, so prophecy is a gift that God gives the church and it can be a blessing and James Dunn says, teaching, biblical teaching preserves continuity, but prophecy gives life. With teaching, a community will not die, a church will not die, 
but without prophecy, it will not live. And what I'm doing now, when we preach up here, it's a kind of prophetic speech. We're taking God's Word, we're prayerfully speaking it, and there's there's a prophetic thing happening every week when we gather. But there's an opportunity for for each of us in, in life groups, friendship groups, prayer groups, you know, someone said it to me this morning in our prayer time upstairs, 8.15am every Sunday, for those who love prayer, um, come along. Um, someone said to me after the prayer time, how's we're praying? I just felt like I had a, kind of a word and just going to share it with you, take it or leave it. And they did. And it's, it was helpful. And it's like God saying, I know you. I know you and speaking a more personal word to you. So let's not be scared of prophecy or kind of, um, you know, avoid it. But I would just say a couple more things. Um, Every Christian can prophesy and be used by God, both men and women, uh, to speak a more immediate word to someone. Prophecy is to be tested. It's not binding. It does not add to Scripture challenge or distort Scripture or take away from the authority of Scripture. And so it's important to remember that. And just quickly in the early church, they started to have a bit of a, uh, um, other letters started going around. One was called the Didache. It's literally just the teaching in about the middle of the second century. And it wrote specifically about how to tell which prophets should be um, accepted. And one of the things it says basically is a prophet comes to you and says he's a prophet, comes to your town and stays more than three days at your home eating and drinking your food, they're a false prophet. (laughs) If they ask for money, they're definitely a false prophet. But then it also goes on to say, well, we, you know, we should support those who are commissioned and appointed by our church uh, in these ministries. But one of the things was, yeah, if, if a prophet's greedy and hungry, uh, send him on his way. So let's just wrap it up here. I, I want to say just as we do wrap it up, Antioch is in our DNA as churches. Um, I've read a bit of the Oldgate Baptist Church history and and Mount Barker, and I just want to share a couple of things with you because sometimes, you know, it helps to go back to just see where we started. And Allgate was started by 25 people in the late 60s. And they stepped out in faith in the early 70s to buy property. And here's a bit of a, an overview of their, their meeting when they wanted to buy that property that we use every week up there at Allgate. Uh, Here's straight from the minutes of the meeting. When the congregation met to discuss what was to be a leap of faith in purchasing the property, a time was spent in prayer. It's the prayerful church. All who spoke believed that this was the direction that the Lord was leading. There's prophecy right there, right? We believe God's saying this and how we're going to respond. That was the amalgamation journey. We didn't vote to amalgamate. We voted because we believed God was saying we needed to amalgamate, that He had spoken to us. And the vote ratified what the Lord spoke, not the other way around. The issue of finance became a sticking point for some. However, several people in that discussion challenged us to take a step of faith. And they said, hadn't we seen God do great things in our short history? Come on. And they're like, let's do this. Let's take the land. That's all gate. And then they write in the book, throughout those early years, the practical needs of the church were balanced by taking risks for God and stepping out in faith to ensure His work would proceed in the most effective way. There's the Antioch spirit right there, stepping out in faith. And listen to what they say. We had the joy of seeing men and women Boys and girls come to know Christ and grow in their Christian life through the work and worship of Allgate Baptist Church. It's a prayer who loves the lost, who's praying and worshipping and loving the Word, who's reaching out. And it's beautiful. And then Mount Barker, 150 years ago this year, in October, end of October, we're going to have a celebration service. It's a few years overdue for Allgate because we had COVID and stuff, but we're going to do a 150th for Mount Barker, a 50th for Allgate as a celebration of what God has done, but also as a looking forward to what God will do. And Mount Barker started 1873, late October, with 22 members, 22 members. Two months later, listen to this, two months later, they bought a plot of land in the middle of Mount Barker. (laughs) Two months after starting the church with 22 people, they buy a block of land in the middle of town. Three months later, they appoint their first pastor, Reverend Ebenezer Henderson. What a dude. He's our brother, right? Reverend Reverend Ebenezer. Four months later, after starting the church with 22 members, they appoint an architect 
to draw up plans and put them in the local council chambers to be viewed and approved, and they were approved. Five months later, they start building. Five months after starting the church with 22 members. My gosh, look how big we are. We should be done in three months here. What's going on? They start building. And do you know they laid a foundation stone and buried a time capsule, which has never been found. It's still there. But I love this little story. Some of the members of the church wanted to put coins in the time capsule. As a, you know, when we open it up one day, it's like, oh, look at those nice coins. Reverend Ebenezer's like, no way. We're not using one cent like that. That money is for the Lord's work and we're not going to bury it in the ground. (laughs) I love that. And so within one year, one week before their first anniversary, they open their new church in the middle of Mount Barker. And it's still there. Ironically, it's now a liquor store, which is kind of funny for Baptists. But hey, we had 110 years out of it and that's pretty good. And I love what um, John Smith, who's um, doing some leadership at Allgate, Baptist pastor, he was pastor of Mount Barker Baptist Church when they left that building to build their new building on Victoria Road, which we just left 18 months ago. And now we're going to be building on Bolland Road. This is what he said about Mount Barker. And I want you to hear this because I think it's prophetic. And I use this a couple of times at Mount Barker. The history of this church has been colourful with people and circumstances. That's a nice way of saying We've had some ups and downs. (laughs) As the church body has kept their eyes on Him, being dependent in prayer and devotion and for direction, with a resultant love, support and encouragement, the church has grown spiritually and numerically. The time of rapid growth early this century in the church came as a result of evangelistic missions, weeks of prayer, both before and after, and times of waiting on God. Does that sound like an Antioch church? Their love and prayer, their love and worship, they're reaching out with the gospel. They love the lost. It was during this time that a new work at Little Hampton was started. I don't know what happened to that, but it was great they started one. It was during that time new people were being added to the church constantly. Listen to this. When the church became inward looking, concentrated on personalities and was prayerless, there was little growth. It's not rocket science, is it? (laughs) Why would the Holy Spirit want to bless and move and be poured out upon a church community that's just stuck inwardly looking at itself, worried about its own problems? The Holy Spirit's like, I'm busy, guys. I'm out there getting on with the mission of Jesus with people who will follow. And I love that. As the church looks to Jesus as it's prayerful, as we continue to have a passion for the lost, as we continue to um, love His Word and, and worshipping together and pray. And think about that just on Sundays. It's become very kind of trendy over the years for church to be an optional extra. I have to say if you love Jesus, if you love His people, you gather every Sunday. It's just there in the diary. And like, sure, there might be some different things happening on the weekend, but make it a priority to gather for word and worship. It's really important as we work together on this mission. And we see that in both of our churches. Antioch is in our DNA. We see it there and we see it now and we want to keep seeing it. Being a church that loves the lost, that loves the word of God, the Bible, and its teaching and its revelation, that loves worshipping our God, that loves praying to him and together that loves letting leaders loose and loves one another. That's the Antioch paradigm and that's the Antioch church. So as the team comes up, you can lead us in prayer. But I just want to take it just a slight different angle here as we close. I say this to myself, where am I stuck in an old Jerusalem paradigm? You know, I don't care if you've been a Christian for one month or 50 years. We do get stale. We can get stuck. Life becomes a bit predictable. And I was thinking, where is God speaking to you, to me? Where, where do we need a shift? Where do we need to change our thinking? Where is God wanting to do a new thing? Where's the new horizon for you that, that God is bringing to you? 
that might be risky, might be uncertain. But you saw these Cypriot and Cyrene believers, they're like, we could just go home, just be comfortable, just look after ourselves. But God was beckoning them like a new horizon. God was doing something new. And I believe, as I understand the Scriptures, that God is always doing a new thing. God is always pouring it out and doing something new. And as I prayed this week, I'm like, a word about marriages? Maybe in your marriage, God wants to do a new thing. Maybe He needs to do a new thing. Maybe in your family, your parenting. Maybe you're a single person and you just feel a bit stuck in singleness. You're not. God can use you. He has shaped you. He has equipped you for His work. There are people that you can reach in your unique circumstances, like Barnabas, like these guys who went to Antioch. They were Greek-speaking, culturally Greek Jewish believers. God had shaped them and equipped them for their, their place. You're in a workplace, a job that is hard, that is difficult, that you don't like. You're there because you need to pay the bills. You need to put food on the table. Think about Antioch, a different paradigm that God can give you a different way of seeing that, a new way of seeing it, where He can use you in that situation, even though it's difficult, even though it's hard. Maybe you're lost here this morning. Maybe you're one of those people that we love as a church. You don't know Jesus. This doesn't make a lot of sense, but you you sense that God is doing something, saying something to you. Come and talk to me after. Talk to Dave. Talk to Leona. Talk to one of the leaders. I'd love to pray with you and, and help you on a journey to know Jesus. Maybe you need a year of teaching and discipling. Maybe you're a new Christian, a young Christian, and you're kind of stuck a bit. Again, come and get in touch. We'd love to find ways to get you into a life group or or huddles we're doing as well. Um, Small groups of people praying together, sharing the Word. And maybe you need love. Maybe you're hurting this morning. You're just hurting. And if you're online, maybe you're hurting and that's why you're not here. It's okay to hurt in church. It's okay to be hurting. It's okay to be dealing with brokenness as God's putting our lives back together. There's no shame in that. But reach out. Reach out this morning. Just ask someone you know, can you pray with me? I'm hurting. I'm I'm hurting. And let's trust the Lord in that. And I've said finally twice, I mean it this time, the new Jerusalem, the old Jerusalem is gone. It's gone. 30 years after Antioch, it was sacked by the Romans and raised to the ground. It's gone. But in one sense, it hasn't gone because Jesus is bringing a new Jerusalem. He's bringing a new heaven and a new earth. And Revelation 3 says this, The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. See the intimacy there. This is the new Jerusalem where God wants people from every tribe and every tongue gathered around His throne, worshipping Him. John says in Revelation 21, I saw, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, beautifully prepared like a bride dressed for her husband. Lord Jesus, we thank You. We are Your bride. We are the body of Christ. We love You, Lord. We thank You for these people of Antioch, these disciples who went there and said, we're gonna take the good news of Jesus, not just to our Jewish brothers and sisters, we're gonna take it to the pagans, to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people. That's us, Lord. Because of this Antioch, this Antioch movement, the Gospel went across the nations and we are here this morning thankful for these people that love the lost 
and they stepped out and they got some heat for it, Lord. They got some pressure from some of the heavies in Jerusalem. And Lord Jesus Christ, we pray for that DNA that's in our history to continue to be the DNA here, that we will love the lost, that we will love the Word and worship and prayer, that we would let leaders loose and that we would love one another. Bless you, Lord. We love you. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people, and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.